Don't tell me words don't matter. Because our words have creative power. On Open to Interpretation, host Amy Young is joined by PLU faculty and educators from different academic disciplines to consider a single word commonly used in the news, on social media, and on college campuses. It ain't the word! It's the context in which the word is said. Through debate and dialogue, Open to Interpretation reminds us that rarely, if ever, can a word's meaning be reduced to a single understanding. At last, we're going to have a dialogue about the power of words. And now, here's Dr. Amy Young. Welcome to Open to Interpretation. I am Amy Young, Associate Professor of Communication. And I have with me today two guests. We have Professor Michael Halverson, who's Associate Professor of History in the Benson Family Chair, and Professor Lisa Marcus, Professor of English. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. <laughs> of course. Okay, so we always start this with some warm-up questions just to kind of get the nerves out. So uh, first question, the Oscars were a couple weeks ago. What is the best movie you've seen in the past year? Mike? I loved La La Land. I thought it was great. It was romantic and fun. And I got to realize that you can dance and sing at any point in your life. See, that's what that movie shows. You just get out there and... You just got to dance. Like in the middle yeah. of the interstate when they're out there dancing. Have you seen this? It's no, really, it's really, I haven't really seen charming. any of the Oscar films. Yeah. What about you, Lisa? Oh, I only see films with my children. And the last film I saw was Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which was actually really terrific and fun, interesting movie. I sort of have the same issue. I don't see a ton of movies. And the last movie I saw with my kids was Lego Batman, but I thought it was very <laughs> cute. Okay, so in honor of Lisa's current sabbatical year, what is your ideal place to sit and write for a couple hours? Lisa? Hmm, bed. Bed. I think my answer is bed. Uh, maybe it's not the ideal place, but I find that I think a lot in my bedroom. And it has a big window that looks out at woods, and I f just feel productive in an intellectual way there. That's good. I feel like my brain just doesn't shut off there. Mike? Uh, this is a depressing answer because I used to think it would be like being in Tuscany and a amazing place that I <laughs> right. visited once, the wind blowing around. But I've subsequently learned that I need to be in like a, a room with the blinds closed and nothing on the wall and just a laptop and just to write for 10 hours and go to bed. I mean, that's that's yeah. that's kind of the way writing is for me. It's like something I really have to focus on. I can't look out at Starbucks and look at the people walking by with their lattes. No, I wish I were better at working from home, but all I want to do is watch Anthony Bourdain reruns and make <laughs> exactly. snacks, and it's not really all that productive. So I honestly am most productive sitting in my office, which is also not the most happy place to be, but whatever. It's okay. I, um, I don't think I've ever written anything substantial in my office, and I've really? been teaching at PLU for 20 years. But I just get interrupted in my office, yeah. and I need quiet. I really need almost absolute silence. Like, I don't think I can write in public unless I'm writing, like, a business memo or, you know, an agenda for a meeting. If you could teach a study away course anywhere in the world, where would it be, and what would the course be about? Mike? So I just, during J-term, taught a Tudor England class. Mm -hmm. I was over there, and it was great. I've done it three times. It's wonderful to be in England. 
But I have to say that I would really love to teach a class in Iceland because I teach a Vikings class. Oh, cool. And it just seems so epic to be in Iceland yeah. walking around those vol- like literally volcanoes and people running around like they did in the sagas. But it's so cold in January when yeah. we do our abroad classes. So I think it would have to be a and summer dark. a summer study away. It's like four hours of daylight or something. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. But then there's the, the you know the, the mineral spring that you could jump into to make it all good. But true. True. Or lots of vitamin D. Exactly. But they are great readers, right? They have great literature there. The Viking period is uh, one of those times in which people want to study the literature in place a little bit. So I think it'd be a really cool spot for a class like that. Cool. Yeah. How about you, Lisa? I also have a pretty dark idea about a study away <laughs> class, and I, I really hope to develop this class. I want to do a Holocaust literature class. I'd love to take students to Poland and spend wow. time in Poland and go to Auschwitz and go to the Polish countryside and go to other sites, say, perhaps in Ukraine. But I think a class like that would be much better done in the summer because at least there's sun mm-hmm. after going into some of those sites. So even though I've thought about developing this class, I haven't moved that along. I actually have thought of, about this because I have a colleague who he and I are writing a lot on rhetoric of food and food ways, mm-hmm. food culture. And so we want to do a food trip to Portland wow, with students. Which would be not very far, but I think it could be cool. Everybody would have to be 21 because I want to take yeah. them – into at least into tasting rooms. They don't, they're not required to do any tasting, but you know, they got to kind of go because that's part of the experience. Totally. The Mm. wine and the beer. The wine and the beer. Yeah. 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 I think it'd be super fun. Okay. So in this podcast, we try to take words that are popular in popular discourse and media or on campus, and we try to talk about them in the myriad ways they may actually be used. So rather than sort of denotative definition, what's connotative or circulated meaning or the way that we might use them in disciplines or in other kinds of contexts. And so we're going to talk about symbol as a word, which is sort of layered right from the get-go. So a symbol is a mark, a sign, or a word that represents an idea, object, or relationship, which means a single letter is a symbol. Also, words, sounds, gestures are symbols. A nod of the head or a smirk is a symbol. So all of that said, it's a massive topic, but I'd like to discuss today how certain symbols in history and contemporarily have grown especially powerful. To open, how would you define symbol or the process by which something comes to represent another thing, person, object? I can't help but answer as a literary scholar or as a, as a cultural scholar. And so for me, when I think about symbols, I immediately think about texts and symbols in, say, for example, literary texts, mm-hmm. that symbols are not simple. I think that we might think of signs as as more closely referencing something, whereas a symbol in a literary text could mean a lot of things. It tends to mean something bigger, and it tends to have multiple meanings, and context really matters in terms of symbols. So I am wearing a shirt with tigers on it. My husband calls this my Aunt Jennifer's Tigers shirt. Uh, (laughs) He is also a literary scholar, and he's referring to a poem by Adrian Rich, which casts tigers as free, masculine creatures, whereas in the poem, 
the Aunt Jennifer is sewing and she is stuck in a bad marriage. And the poem is actually a kind of classic feminist poem and a critique of patriarchy. So one of the reasons I wore this shirt is because even though this is radio, it would remind me to think about the tiger and, and what it symbolizes in that poem. Thank you. That's also, I like the shirt, and I've read that poem. Thanks. Mike? Um, you know, <laughs> historians probably want to look at the way symbols change over time, and historians use, like to look at primary and secondary sources as a way of looking at symbols changing. But if we pick a big symbol, like um, the Statue of Liberty in America, mm. okay. which has been in the news recently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Statue of Liberty seems to represent freedom and kind of a, a, a welcoming inspiration, often thought that way for immigrants. Uh, if you look at the origins of the Statue of Liberty, it's contextualized more sort of in the aftermath of the Civil War. And there uh, are references to the, you know, the freedom of slaves or freeing of slaves. For example, the Statue of Liberty has a chain around the bottom of its foot mm. that you, know, you don't really see. Right. But um, you know, that, that meaning uh, has changed over time. So what the Statue of Liberty means as a symbol might mean welcoming to some people. It might mean uh, sort of chaos of immigration. And we are super interested in how this just sort of changes over time, right? How different people infuse different meanings. And the whole exciting thing about symbols is that everyone can have a different understanding of what that might mean. The American flag, for some people, might have a one type of meaning. For others, it might have a different meaning. And then sort of that space in which people fight about the meanings is where we get culture and politics and all kinds of sort of discourse, right? Right. I think that's an interesting, I have a follow-up question that was in response to that, which is what kinds of things do you think precipitate changes in the meaning of symbols or the way that a symbol becomes something else? Let's say the Statue of Liberty or something like the Confederate flag or other kinds of things that are currently newsworthy. I was thinking about the Statue of Liberty and the poem that's yeah. on it about, you know, the your huddled masses yearning to yes. be free and all of these kinds of things during this immigration debate. How do those things change or how do we sort of adopt them or readopt them as a different kind of meaning? I was just looking actually yesterday at the symbol of the Confederate flag, and that became even more contested after Dylan Roof, the white supremacist, shot up the black church. And finally, we saw some people uh, in the South rejecting the symbol. But then I saw a poll actually on CNN that suggested that a number of people don't actually know what the Confederate flag symbolizes. They don't know its origins, and they don't even tie it back to the Civil War and the secessionist South. So it's just seen as a national symbol of the South that it's kind of seen and it's not in loaded in the way solidarity. That other people would so see it's it racist loaded. history gets erased for a certain segment of the population. Sure. My mother is from rural South Georgia, and I'm actually a daughter of the Confederacy. I don't have my papers because I didn't go for them. But I just remember this because we have a vacation home out in Packwood, Washington, and there's a guy that calls himself the Rowdy Rebel whose house is entirely covered in Confederate flags and other kinds of things. And my mom drove by and texted me and said, what the hell is this? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, because her family didn't fly this, right? And I... The understanding, of course, was exactly 
what what we would understand it to be. This is not something that we want to symbolize our family. So it's interesting that people don't have that. To me, it's alarming people don't have that association. One of the, the things in European history that mm-hmm. people that study early modern Europe love to look at are these sort of religious symbols that seem to be markers of the big political and cultural changes that are happening. So one that we talk about in like my Reformations class is the bread in the communion or the Eucharistic ritual. You right. Know, like this bread and it's it symbolizes Jesus. And for Roman Catholics in a particular time in the later Middle Ages, it is Jesus. It represents Christ. The literal right? body. So mm-hmm. it has to be taken care of and it's a moment of joy and reverence to see it. And if something happens to it, like if a mouse chews on a bit of it, it's like potential sacrilege and the mouse, you have to chase down the mouse and get it and... Uh, because the mouse has eaten Jesus, right? And so later, reformers, the, as the Protestants come rolling along in their merry band of change, they start to say, we want this symbol to mean something different. And some say, no, it just represents Jesus in a spiritual way, not in a literal way. And even this, though it's the same piece of bread, it means something very different to these people. Mm-hmm. And I think your original question, Amy, is, you know, how how does this happen and why are certain symbols sort of changed in these ways? And it's because something central about that age seems to be tied up in that symbol. So it happened to be late medieval Catholicism was just such a big aspect of life. And even for the reformers, you know, that was the case as well. Today, someone may have a completely different understanding of what that bread might mean in uh, a religious service. And so, yeah, the, the, the symbols are constantly... Um, being sort of refilled with new things. And we can see those traces in texts and in art and in liturgy and in song and all kinds of things like that. It's interesting, those cultural or political moments in which something happens that then requires us to rethink or realign what the symbol is or recast it in some way to make different meanings. So if you're thinking about symbols, I mean, we could think a lot about a lot of kinds of symbols, and I'm sure you have examples that you'd like to talk about, but something like a corporate logo is a symbol, uh, something that represents a lifestyle or an ethic or a brand. Then how does that compare to something that's an historically important, you know, quote unquote logo like the cross of Christianity or some other kind of symbol in literature that we might think about? Well, I mean, it's super interesting to think about corporate logos and corporate messaging and and images. And I would expand that to think, I mean, I think of something like the Macintosh and the Apple logo, you know, which is really recognizable to people. And it denotes a kind of a brand association and a brand identity. But then it also these followers, right? So a person like says, I'm a Mac person. And I suspect the two of you might be Mac people. I'm not sure. I'm actually not. I only have an iPhone, but I was a consultant for IBM when I okay. got out of undergrad. So. Well, you look like a Mac PC person. PC girl. Though. Thanks. You look, yeah, you look sort of cool, which I'll is a compliment. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, exactly. Thanks. Yeah. But, you know. Uh, <laughs> Wait, you didn't say that about me, though. But you did assume that I was a Mac person. I just, I just feel like you're just sort of laid back and groovy. And you know what? My whole family is that way. And I'm like the one PC person. Uh, and what's funny about these stereotypes is they represent sort of these symbols or they, they're connected to these symbols. And they don't always fit, but that's what symbols kind of do. They kind of make you choose. Like, are you a Mac person oh. or a PC person? Well, I'm not. I'm neither or I use them both. But they really kind of create an affiliation and a sort of a, a, an insistence that you be loyal to this particular way of looking at things. Well, now, of course, the Apple machines, they don't really – have everyone's attention, right? Most people will use a phone, an Apple phone, an iPhone. 
or some other product, but they'll still have that sort of association. Anyway, about the logos, they just persist, I think, in a person's mentality as long as that company keeps reinforcing them. Mm -hmm. And they give class status. I think that that is connected to this idea of logos, that certain logos indicate class or they indicate race or gender that we might affiliate around a particular logo. I was thinking as you asked this question about icons, um, because you were asking about like big symbols. um, And I was thinking about cultural icons. And since I work on the Holocaust, I was thinking about how Anne Frank has become an icon. Just even seeing her picture, she was used in a Nicholas Kristof story this summer. Anne Frank is now a Syrian girl. And the story got a lot of play. It showed a picture of a bloodied young Syrian girl. And we don't even have to know much about Anne Frank at all. We see her picture. She's an icon. She's a symbol for Holocaust suffering, for the suffering of children in the Holocaust, for um, needless suffering. And, and so she comes to represent something much bigger than this person, than this diarist, this young girl. Mm-hmm. So I think icon. I was thinking about what's the difference between an icon and a symbol. And it goes back to religious symbology. So I was thinking about Anne Frank. I was thinking about various other icons that we might... Explore. What, what do you think is the difference between an icon and a symbol? It's <laughs> an excellent question, mm. Dr. Marcus. So this actually goes back to saints. And so I'm looking at Mike because I'm thinking that he might be able to answer this even more. It started with idolization, I guess. Maybe that's the wrong word of particular saints. It has it, religious iconography, I mm-hmm. guess. But then I tend to think of people as icons, but things can be icons as well. Well, I mean, absolutely in the Middle Ages, both in the Greek Orthodox tradition and in the Western Middle Ages, they came to associate these healing powers and this sort of special relationship with God through these saints. And they, uh, particularly in the West, right, they make these icons of saints. They create statues of saints and paintings of saints. And, of course, religious art is full of these. And interestingly, people originally came to these images for sort of blessing and support and hope and, and encouragement. And then during times of religious reform, sometimes they attack these icons, right? So iconoclasm is really the the assault, the destruction of these icons where people are are attacking them. And it makes me think of more contemporary icons in which sometimes people destroy them, like during the WTO riots in Seattle back in 1999. You know how the Nike store was attacked by anarchists right. with sledgehammers, breaking the windows and attacking Nike. It really seemed like a kind of a secularized version of this religious tension that, was, that we've seen in earlier times. Interesting. Featuring video testimony from 16 PLU students, faculty members, and staff, PLU's Listen Campaign is a collection of individual stories that provide multiple perspectives on what it means to be a community that not only embraces diversity, but also works actively in community to provide social change. Learn more at plu.edu slash listen. How do leaders attach themselves to symbols or the use symbols? This is obviously a pitch to maybe, well, it might be a pitch to thinking about the swastika. Sure. Um, and 
Hitler's use of the swastika and elevation of it as a symbol for Nazi Germany, as a symbol for a kind of racial purity. Mm-hmm. And that symbol is obviously still in, in circulation. I think you can also think about other symbols. I, I guess I can't help but think about the Make America Great Again red hat of right. our current president and the kind of um, masculine imagery that's projected by that, which then is contrasted by the symbol of the Women's March, or one of the symbols of the Women's March, which became the pink pussy hat, as a rebellion in some ways against this Make America Great red hat. Right. Yeah, the Make America Great hat, Lisa, you were sharing earlier that it really has become this award-winning sort of symbol, right? Didn't like the Stanford-related group, maybe you can find that somehow, but the Stanford-related group sort of said it was the symbol of the year. Mm -hmm. And so basically by that, it meant that it it was just a very concise message, very identifiable, very specific about what it was intending to do. And that was just much more effective, for example, than Hillary Clinton's sort of logo which just can any of us remember it right now? Could you H draw it out? Arrow? It yeah. has an arrow. Yeah. It's and blue. so in like it or not, I mean it was a very effective symbol and really worked really well for the campaign and is continuing to be used. So I mean that is sort of what happens. A symbol can just kind of come out of nowhere seeming to represent a particular group and be infused with all this new meaning. I was just struck that there's actually a group that designates something as the symbol of the year. The idea (laughs) that there are some people sitting around at Stanford and saying, okay, well, what are the symbols of this year? And when I looked at what came up... the pantsuit. I think I, I think Hillary's pantsuit is probably resonates more than her logo. The wall, Trump's wall. Right. Also, gender neutral bathroom signs. The safety pin. The ambulance oh, yeah. photo of a Syrian boy. Mm-hmm. So I think many of us can think about those various symbols. The Make America Great Again hat, though, is a contradictory symbol, isn't it? Because these hats are not made in America. They're not made in the United States. They're made in Bangladesh or China. And even as For a while, they were made in Mexico, which was a kind of grand irony. But yeah, even some of Trump's opponents were saying, like, well, make Trump debate again was one of the (laughs) things that I think maybe Cruz was saying for Mm -hmm. a while. And it just shows that even a person that is, you know, not agreeing with that person has to kind of take the symbol and use it, which is one of the things that's so wonderful about like Saturday Night Live or something in which they simultaneously attack, but then also reinforce the person that they're attacking. So it's that really interesting use of symbols in those ways. And even this phrase, uh, make America great again, actually harkens back to a phrase that was used in the 20s by nativists to keep America isolationist, that a phrase like that could be repurposed without the historical context, without asking people to go back in time to think about what how that phrase was being used, or, or, or I guess more even in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. I guess in this sense, symbols can sometimes be read ahistorically, and that maybe as a scholar, I want to always contextualize symbols. I want to dig into them. I don't want them to circulate in this way, uncontested, uncritiqued. Uh, and and maybe what makes the, this the symbol of the year is that so many people are willing to take it for what it says and without that kind of level of critique. And I wonder, especially about that hat, what that symbol is. What does it mean? What does it do? So it is a particular kind of masculinity, but what else is it? 
It's it a hat, it, it's, right? It you know, so it's hair in place. It does. Yeah, that's true. I mean, do you notice when he's getting off of airplanes, he has to have the hat on because his hair is this artful, con- well, if you call it art, art construction that will that has to be molded. And if he's get if the wind blows, his hair moves. I, I actually thought that might be one reason for the hat was that he he couldn't be out in public without some way to hold his hair in place. I think it's interesting because it also is sort of like the ironic trucker hats that people were doing, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. It reminds me sort of of Ashton Kutcher, but a weird Donald Trump version of that same kind of aesthetic. So how do symbols then become dislocated? Do people just not care? I mean, I think that's an interesting point that you make, Lisa, which is they're floating out there in some cases with no referent what happens? How do we is part of the job, for instance, in our teaching and in our own scholarship to locate, relocate or ground or anchor in some way those symbols? Yes. Good. OK. I, 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 and you were saying this as a historian that you want to put these these symbols into context. You brought up the Statue of Liberty. Um, a lot of people don't know the, Laz- the full Emma Lazarus poem that sits at the base of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, and, and, and it becomes this symbol detached from immigration history, uh, from Ellis Island, from even the way in which we sorted immigrants as they came into this country. Right. Um, so, or as if immigrants came in and we were all cheering in this process. Or you mean that it's imagined that we yeah, are all that we were it's an imagined past in some ways. There is kind of a construction of a past, but it's a revisionist. Yeah. Well, certainly the Statue of Liberty was controversial. If I mean, it, immigration has been controversial from the beginning, really, right. in our country. And it's sort of a false narrative that we've always been happy and welcoming immigrants the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, the melting pot. Yeah. I mean, the melting pot. It actually, I mean, Henry Ford loved yes. the melting pot and he used the melting pot as an example. He wanted to make great workers and have them, you know, become alloys and come out with of this little melting pot actually in in Michigan and they when they were done. But yeah. except certain people weren't allowed into that melting pot because Henry Ford is a notorious anti Semite and he had all these tracts against Jews that were published during this time period. Yeah, I, I think that the point about, you know, how these things change over time is really important. And also that we have to wrestle constantly with meaning and not just insist upon only one meaning for something. Right. So uh, students here at PLU certainly are exposed to that in different disciplines, but also within the disciplines, we just really encourage complexity. Mm -hmm. And in history anyway, one of the ways we do this is by sort of using primary and secondary sources that sort of weigh in precisely on these differences, on these different symbols that Mm -hmm. are being interpreted, reinterpreted, rejected by some, used by others. And you mentioned the cross earlier, which is a, you know a great example of this. This is an execution thing that the Romans used, and in the, they put Jesus on this, and then it becomes sort of a celebration for Christians, and they wear it all the time. And now, what people wear it, it, whether they're Christian or not, and it's just sort of a piece of art that people might use. It, its meaning changes dramatically over time. Mm-hmm. I was to be a bit literary for a minute. I was thinking about Hawthorne's *The Scarlet Letter*, which I imagine many right. people have read. But even embedded into the way that Hawthorne's writing this narrative, *The Scarlet Letter* itself in the text isn't just. It, it, at least simplistically, it seems to stand for adultery. 
the heroine, Hester Prynne, is branded with this letter because she has, has been an adulteress. But the meaning of the letter changes even in that very text so that by the yeah, end, right. it's recast as standing for Abel or Angel. Um, and her lover burns the letter A into his chest because it's unfair that only a woman should be cast as the adulterer in this situation. So even a literary, even somebody in a literary realm might might want us to think about symbols as shifting and as necessarily shifting and, and contested. Do you think the purpose of symbols is in some way to continuously shift? Is that, in fact, part of symbolism or being symbolic? Absolutely. I mean, symbols represent something. And so what the symbol represents constantly changes. Our world changes. Things change around us. They're not static. So, yeah, we, they, they have to change. And then, you know, upon symbols, we can build um, sort of elaborate metaphors or elaborate models. And um, those things will eventually change, but it's harder to change them. We have a model of, you know, Newtonian physics, and we want to go to, you know, Einstein's version of physics, and it's a big change. Right. With, and it's going to take a little while to, to get that done. If we're thinking about other examples currently, uh, we've talked about logos, we've talked about the Make America Great hat and other kinds of things. What sorts of other symbols... Are you talking about in class? Should we be talking about? Are important for our students to understand? So I'm thinking a lot about pussy hats. And I know that at first when I read about lots of women sitting down and knitting pink hats to wear to the Women's March, I uh, was curious and nervous about how, how it seemed to essentialize women and uh, reduce them to the color pink, for right. example, mm -hmm. to knitting, which is a characteristically feminine activity, and then to pussies, which I guess has a double meaning. At first, I was thinking it only referred back to Trump's grab him by the pussies uh, uh, thing that he was caught on tape for. But it also uh, references pussy cats because one of the responses to Trump was to, to say, pussy grabs back. Right. With angry cats. With, with angry cats. <laughs> right. But then, um, so as many women were knitting these hats, they also came under fire by the trans community because the pussy hat was seen as exclusive and defining women in a particular way. I've started to look into this a bit more, and it's interesting to think about, um, I, I just learned the word craftivism, the idea that activists would take to I have craft, never heard that. Okay. Um, yeah, that, power to the and, quilters. And, and that, yeah, that you would uh, take back something that's seen as feminized. So I think the, the people who developed the pussy hat actually fought back against the critique and wanted to suggest, look, we are... Um, we're going to take a term or take a word or take a concept and shift it uh, and challenge it. And so, um, yes, it's going to be pink, but we're going to be powerful. Yeah. And, and yeah, we're going to knit these hats, uh, but they will be a challenge to that ubiquitous red Make, a, make America Great Again hat. And I know that at the in the marches themselves, there was a lot of, I mean, the encouragement was for anyone to participate as opposed to a particular understanding of what women mean or are or are supposed to 
do. Yeah, and these symbols can have a very, you know, sort of powerful positive um, sort of impact or a negative chilling one. And, you know, one that Lisa's talked about also is like the, the coat hanger, right? right? It has sort of a chilling, horrifying sort of um, feel when you mention it. It's a symbol of oppression, of desperation. Uh, sometimes we have sort of a related symbol maybe of like the pill, which seems like a solution, a piece of technology that seems to be good yeah. for women. Uh, and and both of them I actually talk about in my history of technology class here, along with other symbols like the bomb, you know, during the Cold War. Absolutely. And automobiles and what, how they relate to American freedom. And so, you know, a history of technology class would maybe sort of understand how the technology is created and then the social and sort of business and economic consequences, but especially these important cultural things. Mm -hmm. So I find it fascinating that symbols sometimes have that positive feel. Uh, Make America Great Again for some is very positive, you know, so positive that they'll they'll vote for their candidate. And other things are so chilling, like the burning of books during the Nazi right. period or, you know, something like that, that that, that symbol can just be uh, be horrifying. So there's that really interesting positive or negative sort of uh, feel that some symbols have. I'm really glad you brought that up. I feel like in some ways we've been talking about symbols in a more positive way. But in fact, symbols are also stereotypes. So one of the things that I work on as a scholar of Jewish American literature and, and, and representations of Jews in literature is that in many ways, Jews are represented as noses, um, the Jewish nose stereotype. Uh, it's like a Semitic. It's ask, stunning yeah. if you look at The Great Gatsby, uh-huh. um, some of our most famous literature, literature by Hemingway, uh, The Sun Also Rises. These Jewish characters are introduced as giant nostrils. They are just noses. And we don't even necessarily know that they're Jewish. That nose just comes to, to uh, stand, stand for. in for Jews. So, in fact, symbols can be negative. They can be used in these, these really negative ways. Yeah, and there are shortcuts to those kinds of negative um, stereotypes, too, mm-hmm. in addition yeah. to positive things. Mm-hmm. But to think about how, like you were talking about, and you talked about the pill. I was thinking about the Loretta Lynn song and the fact that, you know, shoot, there were so many people who were way ahead of that curve. But then in interviews, she'll say, well, I'm not a feminist. And you think, really? OK, well, yeah, exactly. however you'd like to define yourself, that has come to stand for in many ways uh, feminism. OK, so let's kind of um, sweep the leg in the Karate Kid uh, way here. Anything else you want to say about symbol on the way out of this podcast? Mike? Um, I think that um, symbols are a really important way to understand, you know, core groups and their values. And so in history, we get to study lots of subgroups and recognize that they're all different and they have different sort of cultural, religious, political ideas. They have different value systems. And so symbols can be a good way to attach to those, to understand those, and to see how they change over time. Mm -hmm. They can also be a great way to see conflict. So you look at the printing press and how some people thought, this is the greatest thing ever. These Protestants loved the printing press. And then some people hated the printing press and disallowed it and wanted to create an index of forbidden books. And so certain things uh, just really can be great markers of change over time, which historians love to do. I guess I would say that I want to think about 
symbols as complicated and potentially contradictory. They aren't always what they seem to be at first sight. So take, for example, the Rosie the Riveter right. symbol, the image of this strong woman who is clearly working and a mechanic. But in fact, if you look at the historical context for the Rosie the Riveter image, it was an ad campaign used during World War II to get women to go to work in the factories that had been um, uh, that men had left to go to war. And as soon as those men got came back, the women were uh, lost their jobs. So the context for that image, while it may portray strength is really temporary and it's propaganda. Um, and I think we are called to really interrogate the symbols that circulate in our culture. And I think that's one of the takeaways from our conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you both for being here. This was great fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. And that's all I have to say about that. I learned something today. We're all officially kicked out of school. See you around. Yeah, see you.